Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, it's my pleasure today to be able to briefly introduce you to three of the authors of the standards document. You're going to be hearing today from Dr. Sandra Newberry, Dr. Mary Blinn, and Dr. Martha Smith as they present today's session on management and record keeping. Let me start off introducing you to Dr. Sandra Newberry. Dr. Newberry serves as the chair of the Shelter Standards Task Force of the Association of Shelter Veterinarians. Dr. Newberry joined the Corret Shelter Medicine Program at the University of California, Davis in 2006, and she also serves as Adjunct Assistant Professor of Shelter Medicine in the Department of Pathobiology at the University of Wisconsin School of Veterinary Medicine. Dr. Newberry's current position results from a partnership between the UC Davis School of Veterinary Medicine and the ASPCA. She has published several studies, articles, and book chapters on infectious disease, immunology, and population medicine, especially as it relates to shelter animal well-being, and she travels throughout the year from her home base in Wisconsin, working with shelters around the world. Dr. Martha Smith is also joining us today from Boston. Actually, I think Dr. Smith is in Chicago today because she's traveling, but her home base is in Boston. Uh, Dr. Smith is a graduate of Tufts University Cummings School of Veterinary Medicine. She teaches shelter medicine at Tufts and serves as a faculty member of the Tufts Center for Animals and Public Policy. Dr. Smith is the current president of the Association of Shelter Veterinarians, and she is the director of veterinary medical services for the Animal Rescue League of Boston. And we have Dr. Mary Blinn with us today from North Carolina. Hello. Dr. Blinn graduated from the University of Tennessee College of Veterinary Medicine in 1984, and she has spent most of her career in the field of shelter medicine. After a year and a half with the Humane Society of Charlotte, Dr. Blinn has been with the Charlotte Mecklenburg Animal Care and Control for almost 25 years. In 2004, she received a Distinguished Alumni Award from the University of Tennessee for her work to improve the care of shelter animals. Dr. Blinn has been a member of the Association of Shelter Veterinarians since its inception. So without any further ado, I'm just going to turn our webinar over to our three speakers. Well, hi everybody, this is Sandra Newberry. And I just wanted to let you know, Dr. Spindell will be monitoring um, for questions. and. But I also will be watching the chat as we go. And so if you have a question about um, something as I'm talking about it, I'll try to pick those up. Um, and we, if there's questions that are kind of on a different topic or questions that we want you to kind of hold for later, then Dr. Spindell may be grabbing those. But if it looks like it's something that's really relevant to what we're talking about, um, I'll try to grab those as we go. And so please, if you do have questions as we're going through, um, let us know, because we want to make sure that you're getting the information that you need um, as we're talking. So we're really excited um, to be doing these webinars and uh, really excited to have so many of you here. And today we're going to talk about um, management and record keeping. And this is not often a topic that kind of thrills people and wows them um, when you just kind of hear the topic. But we feel like it's a really, really important topic. And in so many ways, it's really kind of the foundation of, of everything else that happens. And what we're really talking about here is, you know, how do we plan and how do we manage? And so I wanted to just start out with a little thing that I actually just learned about um, through a physics book I was working on with my son. And there's a there's a little experiment called let's take a random walk. And so if we imagine that we're going to take a random walk and we start here, and what we would do is every time we're going to go somewhere, we're going to flip a coin, and that will help us decide whether we're going to turn right or turn left and take a step. If we do that, and here I don't have arrows to do it as many times as we would need to, but if we did this a 100 times, after a hundred times, we would end up only ten spaces from where we started, even though we'd taken a hundred steps. And so the reason that I wanted to sort of introduce this whole topic to you with this idea was to really say that what we're talking about is that having a plan and moving in efficient ways, in directed ways, is so much more effective for getting us where we want to go than trying to get where we want to go without one. And that's really the foundation of, of what we're going to talk about you know, for the next hour. 
So really what, we, what we're trying to say is you need a plan. And what we've got right in the document is really we start out this section by saying that implementation requires a defined mission, policies and protocols, management of animal care, and training. And so that's really what we're going to focus on today. And let's start out by thinking about, well, how do all those pieces fit together? And the way that we look at it here is if we think about employee health, animal well-being, and organizational functioning, that when we get, oops, sorry, when we get all of these things aligned and when our stars are all aligned correctly, really where these three things come together is where we reach nirvana. <laughs> this is what we really want. When we look at an organization, what we want to see is that this organizational functioning is really holding up animal health and well-being and supporting it, and all of that is also supporting employee health, and that that's a really important component, that as we start to think about the way all these things fit together, um, and that if we don't have that great organizational functioning, what winds up happening is the whole thing collapses, and there's no room for nirvana, as Dr. Smith is saying, once we've got collapse. We made sure to design this slide so you could see that there's no nirvana there anymore. And in fact, what really winds up happening is the fact that the organizational functioning isn't working the way that you really want it to, it winds up kind of crushing animal health and well-being and squashing employee health. And so that's what we don't want. That's the cycle that we don't want. And what we really want is for all of you to be experiencing nirvana every day <laughs> instead of collapse. And I wanted to just share with you a couple of uh, some studies I'm going to share as we go kind of through the hour. Um, to talk about this is a study that was done in nurses, and this kind of goes to this idea of, you know, well, how important is this kind of support and how important is employee health as well. And this is a study that was done in nurses, and what they were looking at is something they defined as moral stress um, in nurses. And it, what they were looking at was trying to find risks for cardiac disease. And what they found was that nurses were incredibly sensitive to the vulnerability of their patients, that this was something that they were really keenly aware of, and that something that caused them really inordinate amounts of stress and something that they could actually even measure was that when there were external when there were external factors sorry about that when there were external factors that prevented them from doing what was best that this was inordinately stressful to them, and this was something that they were able to identify as a specific stressor and a specific risk for nurses was this kind of knowing the right thing to do and being unable to do it, um, and the feeling that they had no control over each specific situation. And they actually were able to find this association between cardiac disease and that lack of control in the workplace um, when there were high demands such as very vulnerable patients. And so I think if we try to, you know, kind of look at this and sort of see, well, what are the parallels for, for animal shelters in this, I hope it should be pretty clear to you to kind of think, how does that play out for the patients when the people who are caring, who are providing care, um, are really stressed by the situation? So one of the things that we've got um, in the document, and one of the things that we spent really a long time thinking about, one of the things we're hoping to do as we do these webinars is kind of share with you a little bit of our process. Um, but one of the things that, that we thought a lot about was this issue of veterinary involvement. And it's interesting because here we are, a group of veterinarians, um, writing a document telling shelters that we feel that veterinarians should be involved. And so this is the actual language from the document because animal health is woven into almost every aspect of sheltering or rescue programs. Veterinarians should be integrally involved with development and implementation of an organizational plan and must have supervision of medical and surgical care. And so that was something that was very, very important to us and something that we felt, you know, that, that we really wanted to have included and we wanted to say that carefully. And I'm guessing um, Dr. Spindell is going to come back um, in a couple of months and talk about medical health and physical well-being and we're going to address this issue again um, at that point. But what I wanted to do was kind of share with you a study um, that was done looking at shelters in the western U.S. 
Um, it was done by a couple of epidemiologists and a postdoctoral fellow, and it was done to try to characterize animal shelters in, in one region of the western U.S. And one of their goals was to describe infection control and to sort of figure out what kind of future training they should provide and also just kind of see whether disease concerns varied with shelter demographics. And so they did kind of what we would call a cross-sectional survey, and the study was done in 2007. And one of the questions that they asked was, who's in charge of disease control? And this was very interesting as we kind of looked at this study to see that in 42% it was the shelter director or manager, and only 6% of the time was it a veterinarian who was actually in charge of disease control. And this is despite the fact that when they looked at the responder, so the person who was actually filling out the survey for each particular shelter, over 25%, so over a quarter, 25% of the people responding were veterinarians, but only 6% of the time were veterinarians actually in charge of disease control. And so that just kind of gives as an example why we felt it was so important to include a statement like that. And so when we go back again to the standards, all healthcare practices and protocols should be developed in consultation with a veterinarian, ideally one familiar with shelter medicine. This is something, again, that we spent a lot of time talking about, and the reason for the wording is that what we recognize is that not every shelter will actually have access to a veterinarian who's familiar with shelter medicine. Um, and that's something that we hope maybe in the next version of this document, maybe that will have changed. Maybe there will be more veterinarians who are really experienced and familiar with shelter medicine, and that's certainly high on the priority list, I think, for all of us who are on the call now um, and for the authors of the standards. The other thing here is authority and responsibility must be given only to those who have the appropriate knowledge and training. And this is something that we're going to spend a fair amount of time. Dr. Blim's going to come back and talk with you a little bit more about this concept. But where it comes to you know, this statement about, well, why should veterinarians be so involved, is that we really felt pretty strongly that veterinarians are the ones who have the information on animal health and well-being, and we want veterinarians to be able to share that. Um, as planning, in the planning process, so as a proactive step to involve veterinarians sort of in the management process rather than just in the reactive stuff. And we'll come back and talk about that a little bit more as we go through the talk. The next thing I wanted to share, and this is something that, you know, is a, it's an interesting thing to share at the same time as sort of saying what we really want is we think that veterinarians should be more involved. The same time I wanted to share, this is a study done by Barb Jones um, from University of California. She just last year finished her uh, residency in shelter medicine, and this was one of her projects that she worked on. And if we look at her study, she surveyed um, shelter directors and shelter managers and wanted and, and asked for sort of an appreciation of knowledge both of their own knowledge and then their understanding of the knowledge of veterinarians that they were working with. And the interesting thing that was found in this study, if you look at these um, ones on the bottom, it, there's four on the bottom and then really even including vaccination protocols and products, you can see where the shelter managers and shelter directors, these are the things so on overall shelter operations, behavior of shelter animals, population management, cleaning and disinfection, and not quite, but they understood their knowledge to be about even with that of veterinarians on this study. And so this is an interesting point that I wanted to bring up to say that I think there's a lot of reasons for this. And I'm curious if any of you are interested um, to put some of, to have you kind of respond in the chat to sort of what do you feel like are the reasons for this? Um, I have a lot of ideas and I'd like to share them, but I'd also love to see if any of you are willing to share some of your ideas for why does this happen? I'm going to give you just a couple of minutes to, to put some ideas in the chat. So, so the, I'll keep talking a little bit as they're coming. Um, but so shelter managers and shelter directors thought veterinarians were more knowledgeable in diagnosis and treatment 
of infectious disease, but almost equally knowledgeable for vaccination protocols. So this was the perception, um, this, was the, this was from the shelter managers and directors in these Western shelters that were surveyed to answer that question that Lisa just put up. She said, whose perception is this? So this was the shelter managers rating their own knowledge and then their perception of the knowledge of veterinarians. So great, so Jen is saying many shelter managers are or were vet nurses or vet techs and really are there on the front line. And so I'll, I'll just start talking a little bit about kind of some of the things that I think are going on that many managers and directors have been in the shelter field for many years and really are very knowledgeable. And so that's a great thing. Um, somebody's saying they're on a power trip and I think in some cases what's happened is that what we really see is that there was a period of time where veterinarians really weren't very involved in animal shelters and people really wished that veterinarians would be involved. We had veterinary involvement coming through, and then after we had the veterinary involvement coming through, what many shelters experienced was that the veterinarians who were coming to help with shelters didn't really have all the information that the shelters wished they had, that they didn't have the kind of herd health experience, or they didn't understand how to manage shelter populations, or they were really coming from private practice. And what we're seeing now is more and more we're trying to grow the field of shelter medicine specifically. And I don't think in the time that we have together, you know, that we'll ever really, you know, we're not going to answer this question. But I did want to pose it just so everybody can kind of see that there is this, you know, here we are, a group of 14 veterinarians, shelter veterinarians with, you know, hundreds of years of experience amongst all of us, saying that we really feel strongly that veterinarians should be involved in these things. And, um, and you know, then here's this study sort of showing that there is this different kind of perception. And so... It's really important, I think, for us to have this recognition as a field as we move forward. And so this study I, was something that I wanted to share with you all just so we can see um, what's, you know, what the perceptions are. And again, this is a small regional thing. But thanks very much for all your, all your responses in the chat. I'm looking at them as they're going by. And, um, it really is true that in many cases veterinarians weren't getting trained and weren't getting the training they needed to be in shelters. And what we're hoping will happen as we get more and more veterinarians trained to work in animal shelters and even more and more veterinarians in private practice who have interest in animal shelters, um, that the more that we get that happening, you know, the more great things are going to happen. And shelter medicine is really a very new field, and it's one of the things that makes it so exciting um, is how much it's grown in such a short period of time. So thanks for your input on that. I just wanted to – thought I would just kind of open that can of worms and make sure everybody – you know, I think it's an important thing to think about. So the next topic we're going to really talk about is missions. And one of the things we address, again, is that you need this mission. And when we think of a mission, here's a cat who's on a mission. And one of the things when I talked to Dr. Smith about this picture, <coughs> she said, oh, that's a great illustration because it really shows that no matter what environment you're in, your mission may not change. <laughs> and so I think that, you know, this is an important thing to understand what a mission is, that it's really the task with which a person or a group is charged, and that's really kind of just the definition. If we look at, I took this one from American Humane, what they've got uh, on their website is that mission statements briefly describe what the organization believes, why it exists, and what it does. So now we get to play a game, and you can go back to your chat. What I've done is I've taken some missions from some pretty widely known organizations and put them together, and let's see if anybody can guess who they're from. So here's one. Our mission to create a more humane and compassionate world by ending abuse and neglect of children and animals. Ooh, who got it? I saw somebody get it. Lisa got Oh, no, Lainey. Lainey got that one first. Okay, so this is American Humane. Our mission to build a global animal welfare movement. Good job, Jen. Got that one right off the bat. That's the World Society for the Protection of Animals. 
Oops, sorry. Our mission celebrating animals. I saw Kelly got that one right away. That was um, HSUS, so celebrating animals, confronting cruelty, a better world through kindness to animals. Best friends. Good job, Denise. <laughs> you guys are good. You're quick. Pipers, too. A mission to unite the animal welfare community and be a powerful advocate to improve the lives of animals. That one is, somebody wrote Federation. It is the National Federation of Humane Societies. And the next is a club to help foster and facilitate adoptions for shelter and rescue cats. So this one I actually just threw in because I thought this was so great that even just a club to foster and facilitate adoptions for shelter cats had made a mission statement. And this is just a small little group in Wisconsin that calls themselves Happy Cats. And that is what they do. How about this one? Set the standard, improve each day, and have some fun. This one I love. This one I think is one of my all-time favorites. <laughs> Lainey, I love that from the Boy Scouts. This is actually from Liberty Tax Service. And I just found this when I was looking for other things. But I thought, what a great idea here that we've got something that includes set the standard, improve each day, and have fun all at the same time. And how great is that to include that in what you do as your mission? Okay, so now I wanted to give you some other examples from other national organizations. So we've got an example from SAWA. Um, it's a community of professionals committed to excellence in the management and operation of animal welfare and control agencies. And then they go on to be a little bit more specific even. The Association of Shelter Veterinarians seeks to improve the health and well-being of animals in shelters through the advancement of shelter medicine. And the ASPCA's mission, as stated by Henry Berg in 1866, is to provide effective means for the prevention of cruelty to animals throughout the United States. I'm giving the ASPCA a gold star for this one, partly because it's so nice that it leads right below their mission statement, leads right into the information about policy and position statements if they want more information. What's so great about that is that the next topic we're going to talk about is the way that your policy and position statements really need to flow from your mission statement so that everything you do really comes from what your mission is. And so thanks for that, <laughs> being really readily available on the website in that way. And so what we're really talking about when we're saying that things are going to flow from it is we start out with our mission, and then we have to combine our mission with our responsibilities, which for many organizations are your contracts, and your resources, that, that your mission has to kind of filter through your resources and your contracts to help you set your policies and protocols for all the things you do every day. And so this is just kind of a little animation to show you, you know, to kind of give examples that we may have one organization that has a large facility and lots of staff, lots of veterinary care, lots of funds for treatment, just a few volunteers and a nice number of adoptions. And this organization you know, would set their policies according to, again, their resources, their contracts, and their mission. This may be another organization. And maybe this organization has a small facility and a small number of staff, limited treatment funds, and limited veterinary care. But maybe this organization is going to figure out how to sort of filter their resources through their mission so that they're going to invest an enormous amount in training so that they can have lots of volunteers, which will then lead them, hopefully, to lots of adoptions. And so we want to really have a sense that these things may change the size of things may change depending on how your resources and your contracts kind of filter through your mission. So these arrows um, got a little funky from the transition to WebEx, it looks like. But basically the idea is here that, you know, that what we want to do is we may want to invest an enormous amount in care so that we you know, can meet our adoption needs. 
and and that as things filter through, your resources control what you can invest in in terms of your policies and protocols. So your policies and protocols need to go back and kind of reflect your mission, but with an understanding of kind of what your resources and your responsibilities are. Um, and so again, from the standards document, we've got protocols must be developed and documented in sufficient detail to achieve and maintain the standards. And this is, again, when we talked, when we go back and look at that study of Western shelters and we look and see how many actually had um, policies and protocols for infectious control, it wasn't very many, even though WAPS had protocols for other things like cleaning and disinfection, um, that there weren't, it was a very low percentage that actually had specific disease protocols. But there were high percentages, which is kind of good news, bad news, um, who had protocols for other very important things. When we talk about policies and protocols, one of the big things that we spent a lot of time talking about amongst the authors of the document was what kind of requirement, you know, what recommendations would we make for setting a standard for documenting policies and protocols. And what we said was they need to be documented in sufficient detail. Well, what is sufficient detail? That's a great question. And what we thought is that that's really outcome-based. Um, that there isn't only one right answer to how well you need to document your protocols or how you need to document your policies and your protocols. And I saw a question going by in the chat earlier to say, you know, is this going to apply to just adoption groups or only to big shelters? And when we set out to write the standards, we really wanted the, the guidelines to apply to any kind of organization. We threw a really broad net when we talked about what is a shelter. And so some shelters may keep um, their policies and protocols, as Dr. Smith is saying, through an oral history. But sometimes that can be a little bit like playing telephone. And so you have to be very careful whether things are being um, passed on um, accurately, and then you always want to have something to go back to. So in many cases, again, this is outcome-based. If what you're doing is working really well, then you can stick with what you're doing. If you're having problems, you may want to go back and really think about, you know, for most organizations, this means they need to be written down. Sometimes maybe they're going to be written down in a PowerPoint presentation. Maybe they're going to be written down in a video. There's lots of different ways to, um, to document policies and protocols, but having them written down is going to be really, really an important feature. Access to policies and protocols is, is equally important that if we have these, you know, policies and protocols written down but nobody actually has access to them and nobody's actually looked at them for the last year or two years, then those policies aren't going to do you any good at all. So we have to make sure that everyone who needs them has access to those policies and protocols and they should be readily available. So, you know, even if I'm going to clean an animal cage but I'm not sure I know how to do it, I, need, I should be able to go and check and get the information that I need right away. And I see Jen commenting that they have a living document that's updated often, and I think that's a really great idea. I mean, that's one of the real blessings that computers have given us, that word processing has given us, that we're able to um, have those policies and protocols in a form that, you know, when you make a decision to change what you're doing, you go back and you change that policy and protocol and to try to keep that information really up to date. Management structure is kind of the next thing on our list, and when we talk about it in the document, what we say is that you need to have accountability, responsibility, and authority are kind of the key things, and that if you don't, those are kind of this little triad that need to go together, and that those three things need to be communicated. Again, like policies and protocols, it's not going to do you any good to have this great set, you know, great sort of 
managerial structure without that being communicated to the people that it's most where it's most important. So again, this needs to be a living process with periodic review and updates whenever anything changes and then probably just on regular scheduled reviews as well. So supervision and accountability must apply to all staff and volunteers to ensure policies and protocols guide daily decisions. So again, we don't want anybody out there just kind of making random decisions doing things um, because then we can't know when something goes wrong we can't really know why it went wrong and it's difficult it's difficult to assess I've got just a couple examples here there's two examples here of management structure this is actually a real org chart from a real sheltering organization and so I just wanted to put it up to let you see what one of these looks like in case you haven't seen one. And what we've got here is there's the Board of Directors. The Executive Director reports directly to the Board of Directors. And what they've done in this organization is actually split it into two different charts. So their next chart is on the next slide. But what you can see here is they've got this Executive Director, then they've got their Animal Operations Manager. And then we can see all the other people who report to the Animal Operations manager who then reports to the executive director. But what should be clear from looking at a chart like this is that if there's a problem with the foster parent, the foster parent should know that they can respond directly to the foster assistant who's a volunteer. And the foster assistant should know that their um, supervisor is the foster coordinator. And so we, it's very clear as we look at this that we can kind of follow along and we understand who's got the authority for each thing, who's got supervision, and then to make sure that everyone is accountable for their responsibilities. And so this is just their second sort of branch um, with their adoption manager, their development director, and their accountant. And this is just here, not as, you know, this is like the ideal and perfect um, system to use, but this is just an example of what one shelter did and how they structured it. So again, when we think about this kind of triplet, we always want to make sure that these three things are fitting together nicely, that we've got when somebody's given authority for something, they also have to be accountable for it, and that they also need to have the appropriate supervision to make sure that the job is getting done. Okay. And Susan, thanks for that comment. I just want to make sure that everybody's seeing what's going by in the chat as well. Susan's got a comment in here saying, make sure that your job descriptions are in sync with your org chart and that your protocols are also the best practice they can be. And so what's really, you know, it's really nice to be able to have this all in writing because that's the only way you can be sure that everything's going to kind of fit together in this way. Okay, so we're going to start out and talk about training. Now, I'm going to just take a quick second to see, does anybody have any questions about anything we've covered so far? I haven't seen any kind of hanging questions going by in the chat. Okay, great. And I'm seeing lots of recommendations from people about resources for you to reach on ASPCA Pro, and that's great. And any other resources that people have, please feel free to share that in the chat. This, there's so many resources out there um, for this kind of information, and there's so many shelters out there doing really a great job um, with this kind of information. So, um, you know, the more that shelters can share that information, organ all organizations can share that information, the better. Um, so when it comes to training, this, I was thinking so much about this as I was putting this slide together. I think of all the fields in the world, um, you know, we should be the ones who understand training, right? We're, we, we know so much about animal behavior and training the animals that we work with and how important training is to success. And so I wanted to just kind of give an example of this is my little dog, Peanut. And this is what she used to do every time we took her to the woods, which we would do, you know, a couple times a week. We would go out to the woods, and what we saw was that she had this incredible natural ability and also had this incredible drive, and something that made her really, really happy was finding obstacles for herself um, to overcome. And so we thought, wow, look at that natural ability. Let's recognize her natural ability 
let's offer her some positive reinforcement and give her some more challenges. And now she's a little star of agility. And so really I wanted to introduce that to sort of say that that's the really, you know, we should be thinking. There's one shelter I work with that actually started a program. It's Wisconsin Humane Society started a program called Click and Treat where that's a way that they reward each other for doing really good things. And so we really want to think about all that we know about training when we start to think about training for our organizations as well. Because what we would never want to do is ask someone to perform without giving them training first, because this is really what it feels like if somebody asks you to do something that you've never had the training to do. And this is where we go back to that concept of moral stress, that, you know, when we're put in a position to, and we're asked to do things that we don't have the training to do, it really doesn't feel good. Um, and just as an aside, I want you all to know she got a lot of treats after she stood on the skateboard. <laughs> I'm going to pass the ball, or not the ball, but I'm going to pass the presentation over to Dr. Blinn now. She's going to talk to you a little bit about training and what kind of opportunities are out there. And um, Mary, you just need to tell me when you want me to change the slide. Okay. Hello, everyone. Um, when we talk about training, these are the points that we really want to make sure that we get across, that we must take the time and dedicate the resources to training our staff. Um, we know that training opportunities are readily available out there, and our staff needs to de excuse me, demonstrate their skills before we pass them the responsibility um, for taking on a certain task. Um, we need to also provide them with continual education, and there are documentation programs out there. Um, you can change. Hello? Sandra, can you change the slide? Yeah, Valerie, it looks like I somehow don't have the ball all of a sudden. I have X's instead of arrows by where I changed the slide. Oh, wait, no, there we go. Sorry about that. Okay, and this is just a diagram of what we really want to happen. When a new staff member comes on board, we want to provide them with the training that they need. Um, you know, this may especially be more important in some of kennel staff that may not have a lot of um, education or skills prior to coming to your shelter. And so you want to provide them with the training so that they can obtain the skills that they need to be able to do the job. Um, a lot of things in shelters are very, very new um, with a lot of people. And we I don't know about other shelters. We get a lot of people who don't have high school education, don't have a lot of education. So it's our responsibility to teach them what they need to know. Then once they have demonstrated to us that they have the skills, and we can either do that by um, perhaps a written test to see if they have mastered the skills, observation, um, and supervision, and let them demonstrate the skills to us, then at that time, that is when we can then give them the responsibility and hold them accountability for doing the tasks that they've been taught. And once that has happened, though, we must always provide continual education. Um, we see in the shelter world things change so quickly. There's new disinfectants out there. There's new vaccines that are available. So we always need to provide continuing education to make sure that our staff stays up onto the latest things. Okay. And this is what, okay, and what we want to happen is proactive training. But what so ha often happens is that we get reactive training. Um, if you're like my shelter, sometimes we have a vacancy for months before we get to fill it. And by the time you actually get a body in, you're so shorthanded and you're so stressed and you just want them to work now. And so you throw them into their job and they really don't know what they're doing. And so we've given them responsibility before we give them the training and teach them the skills that they need. And you know that, that's just not what you want to happen um, when you're dealing with your staff. Okay. Um, what tends to happen more often is that reactive training 
is much more common than proactive training. In that study of the Western shelters, um, it is seen that upon hire, only 30% of staff received training on infectious disease control. And that rose to 57% of staff once the shelter actually had a problem. And if we can take a step back and provide infectious disease training upon hire, then we may not have even had an infectious disease problem to begin with. And so you always want to try to anticipate your problems and deal with the training before the problems actually arise. So what resources are out there? Um, there are many, many and varied um, online. We certainly have these ASPCA webinars that we are participating in today. PetSmart Charities has webinars, the Humane Society of the United States. Um, there's a lot of things out there available online. Okay. I wanted to be sure, this is uh, Sandra again, I wanted to be sure to say that what we've got here as our list of what's out there are just the things that we pull together and is by no means kind of an exhaustive list. It's just a list to kind of give you all some information about, you know, some of the possibilities of what's out there. Um, what's available in person, um, there's certainly a lot of national and regional um, seminars and conferences, the HSUS Expo, the American Humane Association annual conference, um, a lot of veterinary conference. One other thing that I wanted to mention too, um, sometimes you can ask your um, local drug reps. A lot of the vaccine companies will come in and provide training, mostly in the infectious disease, certainly of a product that they vaccinate for, but it is a way to learn about some of the more important diseases in shelters such as parvovirus and distemper virus. And, you know, usually staff um, appreciates that. They'll usually bring in lunch and anytime there's food, staff is always listening. Okay. And on the ASPCA website, they have a calendar that will list a lot of the conferences that are coming up. And the important thing to note on this is if you're aware of something in your area, and you want it to be posted, you can certainly go on to this website and do that. And it's certainly a way to let others know about what's going on in your area. And if anyone on the chat is um, has knowledge of other things that are in your area, please post it for us. Okay. Just wanted to make sure everybody is aware this is just a screenshot of the um, ASPCA calendar, the ASPCA Pro calendar, but I just wanted to make sure you see here where they start their calendar. Right up here at the top it says to submit your conference, workshop, or training events. You can click here and it really is um, really easy to do. You click there and you just put in all the information and then you'll get that on that calendar. And it's so important for everybody to have this as a resource where we can have all this information in one place so that people, you know, when you want to start thinking about training, it's all there for you. So thanks again to ASPCA for putting this together. Okay, there are several books available as well, um, Infectious Disease Management and Animal Shelters, Shelter Medicine for Veterinarians and Staff. Um, both of these books are you know, certainly geared toward people in shelters and they're not written so scientifically that only veterinarians can understand them. They can certainly be picked up by just about anyone in a shelter and get some good information from them. Also, there are many um, books now on forensic science as that is becoming a burgeoning field in shelter medicine. And if you do a lot of cruelty investigations, those are available as well. Okay. And it's also important to keep in mind that it's, um, we must continually train our volunteers. Um, most of volunteers are responsible for fostering, and so they need to have manuals so that they will know how to take care of the young puppies and kittens in their care, um, hands-on training in the shelter, um, just all sorts of things available um, to volunteers as well. We should not um, exclude them from continuous training. Okay. Okay. Sandra. 
Sorry about that. I was That's talking okay. on mute. Okay. So one of the things I wanted to also just point out is the picture that we have here is from the Boulder Valley Humane Society, their foster handbook. And the reason that I've used that is just to kind of remind me to mention to all of you that so many organizations have their volunteer training information online. And that one of the things, again, that's great about our field is that we're such a, a fantastic community and that we share things all the time. And so often, if what you want to do is start a training program for your volunteers or improve your training pro program for your volunteers, this stuff is out there and you can find it and you don't have to reinvent the wheel each time you want to do it. I also wanted to just make sure to include what's going by in the chat. I see Dr. Smith adding ideas about, you know, if you can only afford, send one person to a conference and then have them come back and do a presentation and tell you what they learned. And there's something so important about doing that that we can really kind of share the wealth that way. And we've seen lots of organizations who use recordings of webinars and, you know, they get they do that at a staff meeting so that they can train, you know, 30 people yeah, all at the same time by watching those webinars all together. So thanks. And um, what's out there for veterinarians? Um, there are certainly shelter medicine courses and rotations, shelter medicine res residency programs at the University of California and the University of Florida and the Oregon Humane Society. Um, there are more and more shelter medicine internships um, coming about, and the University of Florida has a certification program. And certainly there are a lot of seminars that have tracks that are deal specifically with shelter medicine. And as the person was saying about sending staff, we need to think about sending people to CE um, as reward-based training. They, they really enjoy that kind of thing. Um, it shows that we are putting value in our staff members and we appreciate the contributions that they have to make to us and that we value what they bring to us. Great. Thank you very much, Dr. Blinn. Um, so our next topic is to talk about animal records a little bit. And I saw in the chat some people are um, talking about different software programs, and there's lots of software programs out there, and there's lots, if you look on, um, on Internet chats and all sorts of places, you can find comparisons for different um, for different organizations, different shelter software companies, and you can find a lot of information out there for that. Um, when we talk about animal records, and this is again just information that have pulled, we've pulled directly from the document itself, that when we talk about animal records, the things that we want to have included in those animal records are identifiers, microchip scan results, chip number, species, age, gender, physical description. We're going to come back and talk about that in just a second. We want also included in that is available medical and behavioral information, the source of the animal, the dates and entry and departure, and outcome. And so I'm glad that some of you were asking about computerized systems because while we're not telling you, oh my gosh, you need to have a computerized system, because again, we're throwing a really broad net for all kinds of organizations. But to recognize that even for very small organizations, that's a lot of information, and it really is information that we need, um, that, you know, that, that all of us need to have in order to be able to track and care for the animals in our care. And so again, going back to that study of the Western shelters, 91% kept medical records, which is great, but it also meant that 9% don't. <laughs> And then 64% had computerized data systems, which again means that a large number didn't. Um, this may be to some extent biased by the way that they were doing their uh, collecting their data, but in any case it's an important sort of example for us to recognize that keeping this kind of information, it's a lot of information that you need. You really do need it and you need to make sure you have some kind of organized system um, for doing it, right, that nobody's going to eat or pee on. <laughs> so I've got back there, I've got a little bit of caution in terms of talking about breed um, when we talk about putting that down in an animal's record. And I wanted to just briefly go through um, some information. I got these slides from Amy Martyr from the Animal Rescue League, the Center for Shelter. 
sorry, for shelter dogs. And this is a great little study that was done, and here's some information. If we look at all of these dogs, and I'll have you guys put it in the chat, one of these dogs was given a blood test DNA, or all of them were given blood tests based DNA to determine their mix of breeds, and one of them had a significant amount of Labrador Retriever. And what are your guesses? So they've got little numbers on them. I hope you can see they're numbered one through nine. Which one is the Labrador Retriever? Lainey is guessing five. <laughs> okay, so you're all getting your guesses in. I'll give you just a minute. I think we can all agree it's pretty hard to guess. And there it is, it's number two. So at least from what I'm seeing, I know Megan got it and somebody else may have gotten it too. But we can see that that's really a difficult thing to, um, to pick out the breeds. And so when we put that information in an animal's record, we need to be really careful because we may not always be right. And this is from this study um, that was done, that information, there's a study that was done that compared um, identification by adoption agencies to identification by DNA analysis for 20 different dogs of unknown parentage. And when they did this, 16 of the 20 dogs were identified by an adoption agency as having probably a specific breed in their genetic makeup, and in only 25% of those were those breeds detected as actually the predominant breed by DNA, and in that case, Three of those four were only 12% that breed. So what that means, the bottom line, is that 75% or more are incorrectly identified. And so we have to really think about that as we start to you know, put that kind of information in there. And one of the reasons I'm taking the time out to really talk about that specifically is that this means that the physical description may be much more important than the, than the breed appearance because people may have different understandings and the saddest thing in the world is if somebody lost a dog that they know is going to be, um, you know, they know that dog is half spaniel and they call and they're looking for their lost spaniel but somebody else put that in as a Labrador, we need to be real careful about that. And so when we go to identification, we really want to use um, physical description to, um, to use that. I'm not saying don't use breed at all, but I'm just, I just wanted to kind of raise everybody's awareness of how often breed may be a little bit misleading. And so one of the things we want to say is maybe it looks like a Labrador or really understand that when we put breed in there, that that's really what it looks like to me with, you know, with the understanding um, that we may not get it right much of the time. And so that's just a really tricky question and I wanted to bring, bring that up. And we found that the, we think those DNA tests have very pretty good accuracy, the DNA test that was used in that study. Okay, so then we're going to move on to animal, you know, as in this, you know, conversation about animal identification. These are my two cats. Got, um, and the question is, if we put into the record domestic short hair, male, neutered, white with gray markings, green eyes, and stunningly attractive, how would we ever know which one of these cats was actually Luciano? Um, there's hints. But we wouldn't really know, and I'm making a joke about it in this picture, and we make this joke every day because it endlessly entertains us that our two cats look so much alike. We could scan him if he had a microchip, which, of course, both of mine do. But it's really important that we have important, you know, that we have some kind of identification that's actually on this animal so that we can figure out which animal is which. And it's funny when I'm making a joke like this, but it wouldn't be funny if I told you that one of them was diabetic and needed insulin. Because if I tell you that, that puts both of these animals at risk if they're not properly identified. If we give the insulin to the animal who doesn't need it, we could make him sick. And if the animal who needed the insulin didn't get it, that could make him sick. And so we see this issue in shelters quite commonly where animals are on medication but the animal hasn't even been accurately identified. And in fact, we see situations that are even much worse. So how important is this issue of identification? I don't know how many of you 
saw this story. I'm guessing many of you did. This is Target, um, the dog who came back um, as a hero from Afghanistan who had saved um, this man's life along with many other uh, soldiers' life. Um, the dog came home with him. The dog was on Oprah. Um, and this dog was euthanized by mistake in the United States um, after having come back. Here's a little bit of the story. Target um, wasn't confined, escaped from Sergeant Young's home. Um, after being spotted on the loose, she was picked up. She was brought into the county animal shelter where she was held just like any other run-of-the-mill stray because she had no tag, microchip, or license. So to me, you know, here is the first you know, just tragedy in this, and I see what Lisa's saying as well, is, you know, how could it be that this dog didn't get a microchip, didn't have a tag, didn't have a collar, um, and, you know, just such a tragedy. And so then, you know, the story goes on, and then um, the sergeant arrives, uh, called in, identified his dog on the computer, paid the fees for the computer, uh, for the for the impound, and by the time that he got to, I'm sorry, this slide isn't working there. Um, by the time he got to the shelter, um, somebody from the shelter had apparently picked the wrong dog out of the pen, so no identification. I'm guessing again. I don't know for sure, but I'm saying, you know, if the dog was correctly identified, so misidentification again and was euthanized um, by accident. The um, the county itself that you know was willing to say we screwed up. We're acknowledging that, but obviously there's no way ever to make this right again. And so I just wanted to put in this plug that you know when we think about animal identification, I think sometimes we don't really realize that it has life and death ramifications, and really it does um, all of the time, every day. And I know for many of you, you're out there and advocating for identification and microchipping and tags and all of that, but we need to really remember how important it is even when animals are in shelters. Um, so here's my cat. This is actually Doozle. Read my tag. Identification saves lives. And what we say in the document, and again, this was a really tricky thing for us to figure out how we wanted to say it, was to say we want physically affixed identification. What are the choices for that? We know there are some situations where a collar and tag just doesn't work. We hear shelters all the time complaining that they don't want to use some kind of a plastic collar because they understand that to put an animal at risk. But we really need to understand what kind of risk comes from not being identified and think about that. Um, there's options for neonates. And again, I just wanted to show this is one example. But again, it can be really critically important um, to include these options, um, to include some kind of identification when we um, when we have even small animals and, uh, you know, the animals that I've cared for, foster animals, that sometimes just in having them identified so that I can weigh them each day and understand which one is which has given me the possibility to be able to save their lives by recognizing an animal who wasn't gaining appropriately or an animal who had lost weight by being able to identify that real early and real quickly. And so that's the case with these little snossages here. You can see that they were going along, going along, and then here comes their weight loss. And if I wasn't sure who was who, I might not have been able to identify that they weren't that they weren't gaining properly because I might have thought, you know, this one was actually this orange line. I might have thought that that was the, the appropriate way for this kitty, this puppy who was on the blue line. And in fact, having them appropriately identified made me be able to realize that their mama wasn't producing enough milk for them. Um, I got in a team of little girls to come and help me supplement feeding them, and they all did just great. And here they are, grown up just a little bit more. So anyway, that's all just to sort of highlight the importance of identification. And I um, wanted to thank all of you for your interest and your time and for all the work you do every day. Um, we so appreciate everything that you do and um, so appreciate your desire to learn more and do more. And uh, so thank you so much for all of that. And we have, if we have a little bit of time, if there's questions.
I don't. I think Dr. Spindel was doing a great job picking up the questions, so I don't think we have any hanging questions. Great. Well, thanks so much, everybody. We really, really appreciate everything you do and so appreciate your interest in the guidelines for the standards of care. This is Miranda. Thank you. Um, just want to take a, a moment to thank our speakers, and um, there has been great participation through the hour, um, some great conversations and sharing taking place. So thank you, everyone, for spending your afternoon with us today. Hopefully the um, information that was presented and that you shared with each other will be um, a value in your efforts to save more lives. And hopefully um, we will see you joining us next month uh, for the Five Freedoms and Shelter Wellness. There's information um, up on ASPCA Pro about how to register for that next webinar. Have a good afternoon. Thank you, everyone. I'll be emailing you all um, a link to the recording if you'd like to listen to it again and fill in your notes. <laughs>